Welcome to the Divorce Survival Guide podcast, where we have open and honest conversations about co-parenting, separation, divorce, and the hardest question of all, should you stay or should you go? I'm Kate Anthony, your Divorce Survival Guide, and I'm here to help you navigate some of the roughest waters you've ever swum in and answer some of your toughest questions. I've been to hell and back, and now it's my mission in life to help you get to the other side of this process with your sanity and your heart intact. Hey everyone, welcome back. Happy July. Can you believe it? Holy moly. Summer, she is flying by. So today I have with me, I brought back uh, my friend Lena Derhali. Um, as I said, I think I told you in our first episode um, that Lena wrote two books and you know, she first came to me to talk about the Facebook narcissist, and then I found out that she wrote a book on Chris Watts, and I was like, oh, yes, we will be doing a show on that as well. <laughs> so that's what we are here to talk to, talk about today. Um, I just want to remind you that if you haven't submitted a Q&A and you have something that you want me to answer on a Q&A episode, um, submit them, kateanthony.com slash questions, and I will get to them. And I am spending the rest of this summer writing my book. So uh, it's due to the publisher in, in September. It will not be out until 2024. So don't, um, <laughs> don't get too excited. Um, but uh, just send me, send me all the positive, happy vibes because I think I'm, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm going to need it. That's all. All right. So um, just a recap, Lena Derhali is a licensed and Imago certified psychotherapist in private practice. She is the author of the Amazon true crime and criminology bestseller, My Daddy is a Hero, How Chris Watts Went from Family Man to Family Killer, and the forthcoming pop psychology book, The Facebook Narcissist, How to Identify and Protect Yourself and Your Loved Ones from Social Media Narcissism. She was also formerly, formerly a clinical instructor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the George Washington School of Medicine, where she mentored medical students. So Lena knows what she's talking about. So we're going to talk about Chris Watts. If you don't know who Chris Watts is, we're going to break it down in the beginning of this episode. So listen up. Here's my conversation with Lena. Lena, thank you so much for coming back and talking to us about uh, your first book. Uh, <laughs> spoiler, when I first met Lena, we were going to talk about the Facebook narcissist, which we've already done. Um, and then I found out that she wrote this book about Chris Watts and I immediately was like, Oh, we need to talk about that too. So here we are. Yeah. Um, thank you for having me back to talk about <laughs> Chris Watts. Yeah. So for those who don't know the story, will you kind of give us the, the sort of overview of who Chris Watts is and what he did? 
Yes, for sure. So in 2018, August 2018, to be exact, the world was sort of captivated by this media story that really took off because there's this man named Chris Watts and his pregnant wife, Shanann, and his two daughters, uh, Bella and Cece, who were three and four years at the time, three and four years old at the time had vanished into thin air. Like, you know, just within maybe five hours from their last contact, they were just gone. And everything was still there. The car seats and the car were still in the garage and they live in Colorado. So it's not a city where you just walk places. Shanann's purse and medications and keys and everything were still there. And so, you know, the media picked up on the story, missing pregnant woman, little girls. And Chris Watts did this interview on his porch pleading for them to come home. But every single person who watched that interview, including myself, was like something is really off with Some this things guy. off, <laughs> yes. including and me. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, he killed them. Yes, yeah. I think every single person who saw that interview, I, I don't know what it was, but there was something about him, and and it didn't really match up though with the picture. So he's standing in front of this, you know, nice, beautiful suburban home, and he's objectively, you know, not knowing what he did. You would look at him, and be like, oh, he's a pretty handsome guy, you know, tan, mm-hmm. oh yeah, toned, you know pretty nice looking guy. Um, it seems like a normal husband and father. Anyway, it just unfolded really quickly. And within days, um, the FBI, the CBI Colorado Bureau of investigation had got him to confess, um, and to locate the bodies and the bodies were of the girls were both in separate oil tanks on the oil field where he worked. And then his wife, Shanann had been buried in a shallow grave not far from that, but in the beginning, and I think this is actually very important to the story and probably how Kate, you and I are going to discuss the story Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is in the beginning, in order to extract a confession from him, the CBI fed him a line, which was basically like, did your wife hurt the girls? And then did you hurt your wife? Because in these kind of, you know, investigations and interrogations, they want them to confess to something. They don't care what. So like, we just want to get you for something first. So Chris took that idea and was like, oh yeah, Shanann, I told Shanann I was leaving her. And then I saw her on the baby monitor strangling the girls. And so I went and then I killed her in a fit of rage. And then I didn't know what to do. So then I went and buried them all. So that was, that's going to be a very important piece to how the rest of the story ends up unfolding. But ultimately he was convicted um, he has life sentence. He was convicted on, you know, um, several counts of first degree murder, term- unlawful termination of a pregnancy, you know, tampering of evidence, all these different types of things. So, and, and ultimately he did fully confess multiple times to the real story, which was he murdered his children and his wife to start a new life with another woman. And the new woman was like, well, what? <laughs> because <laughs> the new woman didn't even know that he was married. Right. Am I well, right there's a, there's various um, accounts of this. There's a whole group of people who are dedicated to hating this woman. And she has, hmm. uh, from what we know, changed her name and moved because oh, of the harassment. Um, oh my God. I think, you know, she claims that she didn't know he was married or he said that he was separating, which is totally possible. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, However, there were some, um, they pulled up some of her internet searches and things. And a year prior to the disappearance, even this was even way before she even started her um, relationship with Chris, 
she had Googled the name Shanann Watts. And so like she had sort of been looking her up before. And Shanann had a very public Facebook profile, which again is very important to this case because that's a lot of how we see the victim blaming unfold was sort of this window into Shanann's life and her parenting and all of these things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I mean, people are a little bit suspicious, like you weren't Googling his ex and she's public and like in her profile, she's posting about her third pregnancy and, you know, all these things. So it's hard to say if the other woman knew but I strongly believe she didn't know he was going to kill his family. Like that's something right. I don't think she right. had any, you know, she was not, she was not complicit in the, in the murders. No, let's but put some it people that do. Some people do think that, but I, I personally do not. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. So why is this story important to us? Like, why are we talking about this story on this podcast? Yeah, I think it's really important because the reason I wanted to write about the story and it's the book is not just this true crime book. It's actually a case study in narcissism. And I was taken aback because when I was first watching the case unfold and getting into it before I even decided to write a book about it, I just could not get past the fact that Chris didn't seem like this sort of typical narcissist in the sense that you know, we talk about the um, love bombing, the devalue and the discard phase, which he did all three of those, but the timeline of it was just really bizarre. And the fact that he was married and together with Shanann for eight years in total, and his mask did not slip off until eight years later, when he started an affair with this other woman, which all it took was his wife going from Colorado to North Carolina for five, six weeks over the summer. Um, well, he stayed home because he had to work. And that's how this affair unfolded. And within that short time frame, he realized, I don't want to be married. I don't want to have a family and um, I'm going to kill my family. But that like progression was so fast to me. I was like, how do you? So, yeah. And we know this because they had such a, because Shanann had such a public profile yeah. because she was involved in a, in some MLMs. And so she was, you know, she was always doing these Facebook, Facebook videos, and he was often in them. And he was completely as you know, there's, there's so much evidence that shows this man is a completely dedicated family man. Yeah. And even behind the scenes, you know, um, because he pled guilty so early on the documents and all the investigations, it was all public and dumped out. And so I had hundreds and hundreds of pages of transcripts, but not only of that, of Shanann's Mm -hmm. private text messages with her friends. And so within, you know, and she was very honest with her friends. And so even though she wasn't airing out her dirty laundry on social media behind the scenes, when she's starting to notice when the devaluing phase starts happening, she's starting to notice that you can tell the rug has been so pulled out from under her because Chris was the one who um, wanted the third baby and kind of talked her into it. She was having the boy he always wanted and all of these things. So she's just, you know, like all of us who have been through the love bombing and then devaluing phase, it's just like such a shock when the mask comes off and the cruelty starts. And it's like, he obviously doesn't want anything to do with her anymore. And she's just shocked. Like, how does this person who I thought I knew for so many years is just like this, like you snap your finger and he is a different person. And you can see her distress talking Mm -hmm. to her friends. Like what is going on? Like something's got to be up. 
this has never happened. We've never had problems like this, you know? So she was herself was like, what happened to my husband? That I think is this, is the, is the fascinating part of this, right? It's that it really was on a dime. Like everything was great until suddenly it wasn't right. And And she had, and then it goes, and then it goes from like, it's great to like, Oh wow. He's kind of being an asshole to murder. Right. Within weeks, within weeks. It's like, she didn't even have time to process the change because like the murder happened literally literally the night she got home changing. Yeah. And also like, didn't she, she got home from, from North Carolina. She was home for a week. And then she went on a short business trip with her, um, her company thrive with some of her Mm -hmm. girlfriends. And even on the trip, you know, her friends were kind of like, she wasn't acting right. But he was playing along at this point because I believe he, you know, he had thought he had premeditated this. And so he was pretending like he was kind of into salvaging the marriage. So they were supposed to go to Aspen for the weekend together when she got back. So he's playing along with her, you know, in her final text messages with him, she's asking him, what do you want for dinner? He's like green beans. You know, they're having these sort of mundane couple conversations um, with her having zero clue. In one of his confessions, he says that he smothered the girls in their beds before she got home. So you could potentially look at it as she's coming home to what she thinks is, you know, a normal family environment when he may have already attempted to kill her children because he also said that after his first attempt of smothering them, they were still alive, which kind of goes back to the, the torture he put his daughters through um, because he essentially killed them twice, as he would say. Jesus. So why? So, okay. So this is like, as you said, in your book, you sort of look at this as it's not, we're not, we're not changing into a true crime podcast here. You guys, even though that, you know, you all know that that's, you know, one of my obsessions, but we are not turning into a true crime podcast. We're looking at like what happened so that we can all sort of look out for the, like, were there signs that Shanann missed? Were th- are there signs that we should be looking for? Like, how, how do we use this case as a study to help us understand this, um, you know, I don't know, this, this horrible, horrible, yeah. you know, mental turnaround, yeah. right. Or, yeah. or reveal or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I believe there definitely were signs, but I have to say that um, before I say what I think there are, and that's why I wanted to write this book is like, well, and I don't think Shanann or anyone who knew him would have, could have ever seen this coming or stopped it. I think that's impossible, yeah. but I think there were some signs, but that said, some of these signs could also mean that this person is not a murderer or a psychopath. I also believe Chris Watts was a psychopath. Mm-hmm. Um because he has, I don't think he has any empathy or attachment. And, you know, and, and I spoke to a criminal psychologist about this and she calls him a failed psychopath, which I thought was really interesting because psychopathy, we only see it as, you know, if we're true crime junkies as serial killers or people who torture small animals, but a lot of psychopaths function in society and never uh, are never violent. And so those are the nonviolent psychopaths or what criminal psychologists refer Refer to as community psychopaths, and they could be your next door neighbor, or they could even be a teacher in your kid's school, you know. Mm-hmm, but the mm-hmm. thing about psychopaths is that they don't have the same emotional landscape that a normal person has. They don't have the same attachments. And so they're kind of flat, but they learn to mimic as they get older. They know they're different and they learn to mimic and they start 
being able to mimic cognitive empathy. So they can be quite hard to spot, but they just generally don't have empathy or attachments to others. And they can't really um, bond with others in a real way, but they can learn to put on this mask. And, you know, it's really interesting for the book. I researched people who are self, uh, self-professed self psychopaths and they talk about their experience, um, and their experience of not being neurotypical and like observing and mimicking and crafting a mask to fit in with the world. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so there were this lots is, of signs. That this is a Dexter. This is a Dexter yeah. moment, right? This is exactly yes. what, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And so Chris, I think there were lots of signs, even from a young age, that he was not emotionally attached to people and very flat affect. But I think he learned very early on to mimic really well. In fact, when you look at his text messages with his wife, he's mimicking her. And so she was a very exuberant person. If you looked at how she you know, typed her social media and put out her text messages, there's always a lot of, um, because I think she was a very effusive, exuberant person, which was mm-hmm. the opposite of him. Mm-hmm. She'd put exclamation points after everything. When Chris is exchanging messages with her, he's doing the same thing. He's putting like five exclamation points after something. But if you talk to people who knew him in real life, they were like, he was a really hard dude to get to know. In fact, nobody really knew him. And that's what people would say. Like, he's a nice guy. He's a calm, even keel guy, but I never really got to know him. So nobody ever knew who he was, which I think was really interesting. That was one thing is that this sort of flat affect, shallow emotion and people feeling like, they never knew him. In fact, Shanann would say sometimes she'd try to kind of irk him on purpose and get him riled up just to provoke some emotion out of him because she didn't see it very much in him. Mm. So mm. there's some evidence there that, um, but again, that's not evidence to be like, this man's a murderer or this sure. man's a psychopath, you know? Yeah. I mean, and cause like, obviously not all people with attachment issues are psychopaths, right? Some of them just, some of them just have, you know, you know, uh, are just avoidant, right? Right. Like, so what's the difference between avoidant and psychopathic? (laughs) I mean, I mean, I know it's a huge spectrum, but I mean, I think, how do we know, how do we know if someone's like, just like an emotional avoidant versus dangerous? I don't know if you can totally tell, but I can Mm -hmm. say that I think psychopaths are born psychopaths um, Mm. in the sense that we have a lot of brain scans and studies that there's, you know, gray matter missing in certain areas of the brain that process emotions and empathy and things like that. There actually is in my book, an interesting study on narcissism and the brain too, that may have some similar, you know, lacking in empathy. Whereas, you know, people with attachment issues, that's usually from some kind of developmental trauma. That's more like environment born. Whereas I believe a true psychopath is born. Um, Mm. and can be environment can exacerbate a psychopath for sure. But I think, you know, there is a difference between somebody who's putting up defenses to not get close versus someone who just doesn't have those emotions. Right. Right. Um, okay. So, because, and there's a difference, there's a difference between in these brain scans, right? The difference between being like missing gray matter and underdeveloped or atrophied gray matter. Is that like a... Yeah. Yeah. It's more or less like that, you know, Mm -hmm. but they definitely can see these differences in psychopathic brains and even people with NPD. It may not be, I don't think it's necessarily the same exact thing, but where emotional processing is in the brain is there's, it's not normal in these psychopathic brains and NPD brains. And so 
I think, again, that's why when you look at personality disorders, and some people would say antisocial personality disorder, which is in cluster B with narcissistic personality disorder, they would say like antisocial personality disorder is psychopathy or sociopathy. Um, And so that's why they say, you know, personality disorders are very, very hard to treat and to change. Um, I'm not saying that you can't, but it's very, very hard when you have somebody who is unable to, for example, you know, in their brain, they literally cannot empathize. Right. We cannot change that um, very much at least. And then we can ultimately give them the tools. We can give them sort of the cognitive behavioral tools but then what we're doing is teaching them how to mimic, which makes them hide in plain sight. It's not and giving some narcissists them- who are, you know, public out there and like in treatment and things like that. They'll say what hard work it is yeah. to actually try to, to like learn how to empathize. And it, it is possible. But again, I think there's a huge spectrum of people who are self-aware and to a degree and want to change or are invested in changing versus people who are like sadistic and cruel and malignant narcissists or psychopaths or sociopaths who could kill someone and sleep at night and not feel any guilt about that. Like those people just exist, unfortunately. Um, And we can't, uh, the thing with this that was so scary about Chris Watts though, again, is that it was so unpredictable because, you know, usually we watch Dateline and 48 hours and all these shows. And a lot of these men who killed their spouses, you know, they have shown signs of something either being really controlling uh, having some sign of, you know, paranoia or mental illness before, you know, especially with these family annihilators, because Chris Watts is also thought of as what's called a family annihilator. Usually family annihilators, their main motivation is not to be with another woman. It could be, but a lot of the motivation is they may have a psychotic break. There may be financial shame. They're trying to protect what they think is protecting the family from the shame and the ruin, but you can sort of see them or you can look at be like, oh yeah, there were clues. With Chris, it was just like, again, this father, this in- seemingly engaged husband and father who just changed the second his wife left town. And so again, that's why I think this story captivated the entire world. I mean, I know someone who was in Africa at the time this happened was like, it was on the news in Africa. Oh, wow. Wow. So, I mean, that's why this literally has a cult following, right? This whole, this whole story. And this is why. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think part of it and part of it was the social media presence and people really being voyeurs in a way that we never have before to a case like this. It's just the amount of video footage. And even in the investigation, the first officer on the scene to the Watts house, when Shanann's first reported missing, literally within maybe 10 hours of her best friend last seeing her. Mm -hmm. This is a very short window of time. Officer, Officer Coonrod is named, he is wearing a body cam. And so the entire interactions with Chris, and you can see his body language and how he's acting, like his wife and daughters are missing and there is absolutely no fear whatsoever. Um, His FBI interviews are all video recorded. So not only do we have audio, we have all this video, we can see Mm -hmm. his body language. And so I think people were able to look inside to their, their world and into the investigation in a way that we've never seen before ever. Absolutely. There's a, I think it's, is it the Netflix documentary that is just basically comprised of mostly all of this, all of this footage. And I think one of the, one of the interesting moments too, is when they go there next at his next door neighbor's house. Mm -hmm. Right. And they're interviewing him. And like, I guess Chris leaves and the neighbor's like, says to the, to the cop and you can hear it on 
on the body cam, something's not right. Something's not right. Something's not right with this guy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that was also why I was, I was able to write a book and really make it like I had dialogue, like, and factual dialogue because it was all on tape, you know? So I could construct a narrative of like, this is what happened. And it's factual, you know, because I had all of these tapes to reconstruct the story and the timeline for people. We're looking at this, at this story because there is this narcissistic personality disorder, psychopathy Mm -hmm. hidden in plain sight going forward with this, like, how do we learn from this and protect ourselves in a way when there aren't any red flags? We, we didn't have, (laughs) there was no, there was, you know, besides him, like suddenly becoming weird, um, or an asshole, like, yeah, I think my, my takeaway from this is, um, when we see somebody go to a devalue phase like that quickly, and he was so willing to leave his pregnant wife and his two toddlers. And again, I do not fault Shanann for trying to save her marriage. And, you know, she was trying, she's sending him self-help books, trying to get him to go to counseling, trying to, you know, take him away for the weekend, apologizing to him saying, I'll do whatever it takes to save this marriage. I will change. I will, you know, make amends with your family because she had issues with his family. But I think it was the hugest red flag that we saw was that again, within weeks, He was able to be like, I'm going to walk away from my family. That is a huge red flag and a character flaw. Like what kind of person tells their wife they want a third kid, convinces her to have it. And then is like, actually, no, I'm walking away from all this and I'm not even going to try. I'm done. And so I actually spoke to a neuroscientist for the book named um, Doug Fields. And he wrote a book called Why We Snap, Understanding the Rage Circuit in Our Brain. And it was really fascinating because I also did studies on rage because a lot of people were like, Chris Watts snapped. And I was like, well, no, he didn't in, you know, how, how we think of snapping, which is like within a second, you don't think you go and you know, this was all premeditated. There's tons of evidence. He said it was premeditated. Um, I think at least weeks in advance, he started thinking about the plan at least, but all my studies on snapping show that a a process of snapping can happen in days, weeks, or months, meaning it's like this build-up process. Mm -hmm. And you can premeditate too within that snapping process. But what happens in the brain is this, this doctor, Dr. Fields discovered that there's these nine neural pathways in the brain that immediately kind of activate someone into a violent response. And one of those triggers, he has an acronym for it called life morts. So it's a L-I-F-E-M-O-R-T-S. And each one stands for a different trigger. And the S trigger stands for stopped. So he says, when human beings feel like they're being stopped from something, mm. that's one way that they will, that will make them violent. So in Chris's case, I'm like, okay, he's feeling like his wife and children are stopping, literally stopping him from living the life that he wants. and so he's building up weeks and weeks of rage at them and blaming them. Again, that's not the right thing. That's not the right way to look at it, but this is again, the, the brain of a very emotionally immature and emotionally stunted person who is very selfish and narcissistic and probably psychopathic and not self-aware. So for him, he's so selfish that it's like the solution to that, to get the life he wants is to just kill them, which again, these are very, when I studied psychopaths, one of the, research studies I read said that, um, the difference between like a normal, again, a normal person who's not a psychopath and a psychopath Mm -hmm. is that when a psychopath has a problem, they turn to antisocial solutions like murder. 
Oh, when a normal person like Shanann has a problem, they turn to what's called pro-social solutions. And pro-social solutions therapy. are what Shanann was right. doing. Therapy, books, reaching out to friends. And so again, that was a real indicator to me of the difference, at least in the brains and the thought processes of Chris versus Shanann and Chris versus a normal person. There's also really telling things Chris has said as an interviews that I've dissected that I'm happy to share with you yes, too. Yes, please. Let's, yes, I want to, I'm, I'm curious. And now a word from our sponsor. Back to school season is coming up, which can be difficult for those going through a divorce. This is especially true when alcohol and child safety is a concern. So as you know, on the Divorce Survival Guide podcast, my mission includes helping people keep their children as safe as possible while in an often high-conflict divorce. So that is why I've partnered with Soberlink to help offer resources to help you navigate the upcoming back-to-school season. Soberlink is a remote alcohol monitoring technology created to help prove sobriety in custody cases. The system includes a high-tech breathalyzer device with facial recognition that allows you to receive real-time updates from monitored co-parents anytime, anywhere, allowing for swift intervention for improved child safety. Soberlink has helped hundreds of thousands of people document proof of sobriety in real time for peace of mind in child custody cases. Soberlink is currently offering free back to school and divorce packets that include a Q&A with top with a top divorce attorney. I think I happen to know that this is our friend Susan Guthrie. It also has a back to school checklist, uh, communication tips and more. So go to Soberlink dot com slash dsg to request your free packet today that's soberlink.com slash dsg and now back to our show yeah but i also but before we do that because i but i do want to do that i think i want to highlight that like for people listening like if we're like what are we going to take from this right to possibly look for those antisocial solutions, like, okay, maybe not murder. When we are trying to present these pro-social, pro-social, is that what you called it? Yeah. Pro-social and antisocial solutions. Yes. If you're, if we are coming at this with pro-social solutions and someone is denying them or coming up with other solutions that are not pro-social, right? I mean, if we're saying let's go to therapy and they're saying, no, that doesn't make them a psychopath. No, not at all. But I think what is something to pay attention to is, again, that ability to walk away. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's not just one thing if it's you. It's small children and a pregnant wife without... I mean, even if they're not murderers, something is wrong. Yeah. Something's not right. And you don't want to be with a person right. who's going to walk away from you like that when after all of that. And so my whole thing in the book was, if somebody is going to be so willing to easily walk away from you, Mm-hmm. Maybe take a step back and don't fight them. Kind of just okay. let them go. Yeah. This even if so- you have young children, you know, even if it doesn't mean they're going to murder you or they're going to be a psychopath, but I mean, at least it will give them the space to reflect. And it's sort of the idea. If somebody doesn't want to be with you, you don't want to force them there. No matter what, if psychopath or not, it's not going to end well. 
you know, trying to force somebody to be with you. Right. That's right. That's right. I mean, I just have like, I'm thinking about the clients that I have and the, and the, you know, the, the, the numbers of stories I've heard of women, because just because I work with women and that's the demographic that I hear from who mm-hmm. say, you know, please let's go to therapy. And the husbands will say, literally, I would rather uh, get divorced than go to therapy. Oh yeah. I've had a client um, with exact clients with husbands who have said the exact same thing. Right. And so like, that doesn't make them a psychopath, right? We shouldn't no. be, we shouldn't conflate no. those things. Not at all. No. Okay. And in fact, a lot of, again, these same people have developmental trauma or had bad prior experiences in right. therapy. Their defenses are so strong, but yeah. those could be narcissistic defense. That, that there's, those are some traits of narcissism for sure to be that defended, Yeah, to be like, I'm not going to cooperate or try compromising, you know, I, you know, yeah. to be in this relationship with you. Um, right. Right. You know, but it does not mean they're a psychopath and it doesn't mean they're a narcissist either, but they could have some of those traits because narcissism is also in theory thought to be a defense mechanism to protect from a lot of childhood developmental trauma. Now, not with all of them, but right. That's right. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't mean that you take that and you're like, okay, because a lot of the time you deserve more. Well, right. And I was going to say, I, just I'm because he's not a psychopath yeah. doesn't mean that like, this is a healthy yeah. relationship for you to stay in. <laughs> right. And as a therapist, I don't tell people what to do. You know, I'm not going right. to be like, you should or no. shouldn't leave this relationship. But I do say this. I don't, I don't really work with couples where one person has NPD or has shown signs of no empathy. And I, I've mm-hmm. had couples like that come in where I didn't know. And I've basically said, because Imago, the therapy I do is all about empathy. Right. Exactly. And I remember one particular session I had where the husband was criticizing his wife in front of me for just like how she washed the dishes. I mean, it was just real, real cruelty, you know, like he's picking on her for the littlest things with such contempt and disdain. She's just sitting there crying the whole time. And I'm just, you know, this is, I was relatively new as a couple's therapist. But, you know, I turned to him at some point and I said, if we're going to continue with these sessions, you have to learn to try to empathize with your wife. And he turned to me and he looked at me and he said, I have no empathy for my wife. And I said, then I can't work with you because I, it's, it's only going to traumatize her even further to sit. You know, like, I'm not going to sit here and listen to you berate and belittle her. her in front of me, abuse yeah. her in front of me. And I can't tell her, oh, you got to leave this guy. But I've spoken to women on the phone before and they've told me stories like this. And I'm, you know, I'm saying I can't condone that. I can't, there may be another therapist who will work with you, but I cannot do that because I think you deserve more than that. And I can't sit there um, and, and, and be okay with that. Yeah. And I'm very honest about that. Good. Yeah. Good. Because I mean, I think there's so many therapists who feel constrained, right. You know, and this is, this is why I'm a coach, not a therapist, right. Because, Mm -hmm. because I, you know, I can say be more directive, right. This is why I'm not a therapist or a mediator because I, I, I can't hold back. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So, um, but there are, you know, I, I think they're lucky to have at least had five minutes on the phone with you to hear like, no, 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 that's not okay. And, and you deserve more than that. Yeah. Well, I've actually, since writing this book, I've heard from so many women all over the world mm-hmm. who have been in relationships with narcissists and psychopaths. And one, you know, one of the things they always say is my therapist didn't believe me either. Cause I'd be in couples right. therapists and I was the crazy one. And so a lot of my friends and I have actually been talking about this, um, 
in regards to the Amber Heard and Johnny Depp trial, because, you know, we're saying like, okay, maybe there's dysfunction with both of them, but the way Amber Heard is portrayed as the crazy one, when so many women who have been in abusive relationships are like, I was so dysregulated um, by the abuse that it, you know, and so, so women have come to me and said, like, my therapist thought my husband or boyfriend was like the greatest thing in the world. Meanwhile, you know, he's got all these prostitutes behind my back and, you know, horrible, horrible things. Um, and so as a therapist, I'm super sensitive to, um, not allowing myself to be, you know, sucked into that and uh, the damage and the re-traumatizing it causes women who are in these abusive relationships to have to sit in therapy and have the therapist kind of fawn all over the narcissist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's really, it's really bad. And so I, you know, uh, but there's not enough therapists who are trained in this to really understand that. And a lot of couples therapists, unfortunately are trained where I, you know, I know many of them who like think that we can empathize. We, it just takes time and you can get them to empathize or come around. And I always say abuse is a no for me. Yeah. Any type uh, of well, I mean, unless the, unless the person is like, I want to change and I want to stop being an abuser and I'm going to, okay, great. If the person wants to change, we can try. But for someone who is like, I have no empathy for my wife and I'm not going to try to empathize. Hell no. Hell no. But would you do that in a couple setting or would you do that? Like, would you still subject the wife to his abuse healing process? Like, is that, I wouldn't, I wouldn't allow if she, if I wouldn't allow abuse in my office, you know, I wouldn't allow any criticism. Part of Imago is we teach people how to reframe and restructure frustrations. And so, you know, I'm going to shut, I have some outdoor work going on. Yeah. Do you want to take a pause for a second? Do you want to pause? And I can, I can talk, but anyway, you know, we taught, we tell people in all my sessions, you know, and I don't, most of my sessions do not have, have very, you know, lovely people again, who may have learned things at home when they were kids and bad modeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and don't know how to talk to each other, but in Imago, we teach people to talk to each other when they're frustrated with kindness. Yes. And, um, and so that's like, I don't allow any type of criticism or abusive language mm-hmm. in my sessions at all. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you couldn't really mirror or no, <laughs> so, right? it doesn't really work in the we Imago process. We do not process. allow people to mirror <laughs> criticism or anything like that. But again, I have not most of the time I refuse to work with those kind of people unless there is a huge amount of insight and dedication to changing Yeah, and knowing that what they're doing is wrong. Right. Um, so one of the things he said, which I thought was really, I mean, if you want to know what a psychopath is like this, he was talking about to the investigators that um, if he made up this fake scenario, he was in a grocery store and he lost his children. So I, I talk about this in a lot of interviews just because I think it's so interesting. You know, as a parent, Kate, and I've talked to other people, if you're a parent, even if you're a parent of a pet, okay? Say your pet goes missing for a few hours, right? Panic. Ter- panic, right? Now, if your kid goes missing in a grocery store for a few minutes. Oh, In a yeah. playground? Even you can't see them for a second, your heart yeah. immediately—it's just yeah. this instinct, right, of panic. Yeah, I lost my well, son once for like a good twenty minutes. Oh, that's like horrifying. a really cl- crowded, massively <gasps> crowded Easter thing in a park. Like, I mean, terror. Yes, 
It's horrifying. And so Chris here is like, oh, you know how people, you know, panic when they lose their kids in a grocery store. And he's talking about how he knows he's different. He said, if I lost my kids in a grocery store, I wouldn't panic. I would just walk around calmly and look for them. And I was like, oh, okay. So this is Chris noticing his differences again from people. Was this later in interviews later, or is this like text messages or conversations from before? This is not with his wife. This was, I believe, actually, this particular interview might have been after he confessed. After he was sentenced. Because Mm -hmm. the investigators were so haunted by this trial and this investigation. And he hadn't really spoken. They actually flew to his prison in Wisconsin months later and spoke with him for several hours. Maybe Mm -hmm. it may have even been four hours or something. And that is all on tape as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, he's also, you know, he'll, he'll say um, in, in one, in that same interview that he had to read a book to um, understand that fathers would never hurt their children. And so I was like, you had to read a book to understand that. Like, wow. (laughs) And when he speaks about his children, it's all about him. So, you know, he was crying. He's like, all I ever wanted was children to love me. The language all about me. It's never about, he doesn't speak about his children, about them ever. It's never about them and who they are. And in fact, it's always about what they do for him. So it's either his image as a father. And in the book, I say, I think he's closest to the profile of a communal narcissist who gets their narcissistic supply by being trustworthy and good. And so I think he built up this good guy persona. He also cared very, very much about what other people thought. So when Shanann's missing and her friends are frantic and texting Chris, he's like, oh, I don't want you to think I'm a bad person. He says to one of them when he was saying, hey, we're separating. And I'm like, your concern when your wife is missing is how people are going to view you. Again, very narcissistic. It's all about him yeah, all the time. That's and right. so it's, you know, you're, you see all of this and I'm seeing it now in hindsight, like almost every other sentence out of his mouth is narcissistic and selfish. And, and again, so emotionally spoiled and immature, like yeah. a toddler almost. Right. Um, but I'm not sure if Shanann, you know, and again, this is me being like, oh, this is after he slaughtered his family. I can look at all these statements. Right. And say that, you know, but I don't know if this was picked up on um, by anybody else ever. You know, I think his mother had said like she knew he was different from a young age or he was, you know, kind of. I, I remember there's like there's something about his mom and I don't remember like in court. And it was like whether it was him crying and apologizing to her or her statement or something like I remember something about his mom and just it being yeah. just heartbreaking. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I I don't think his family has ever fully accepted that he's even responsible for this. And so there's a lot of, you know, stuff out there about if he's never held responsible, if he's always the golden boy, you know what I mean? There also is that creation of narcissism in that way as well. And so, you know, in her speech in the court, she did say she forgives him. Maybe that's Um, what I was thinking about. Yeah. Yeah. And she's crying, you know, saying she forgives him and all of these things. And, um, you know, I don't want to judge anybody who has had to go through something like that to their child, like being such a murdering their own children. I mean, yeah, I don't, yeah. So I can totally get why people would be in denial about that. Um, and I can, you know, understand how that could happen, but, um, you know, it was interesting again, it's about, it's always been about him and, 
um, finding excuses as to why he, he couldn't have done it, you know, or finding reasons to blame Shanann, which I always want to go back to as the victim blaming has just, I've, I've never seen anything like it. Like I have in this case. And also people just wanting to blame the women. Like I said, if you're not blaming Shanann, there's people out there who are blaming the woman he had an affair with. Um, mm-hmm. that's right. You know, it's always a woman's fault, or some people out there are blaming the mother, you know, it's always the woman. And in fact, if you go to my book, Amazon page, the most, um, helpful, you know, you can mark a review as helpful. The most helpful review is a one-star review of my book written by somebody who calls me judgmental for judging, for judging Chris yeah. Watts. Yeah. Is that funny? But also, um, the, if you look, it, it's a common theme in these negative reviews. They're angry with me for not telling the truth about Shanann implying in these reviews that there was a responsibility by her in some way for her death. Wow. Some people wow. have their real names attached to these reviews too, which is scary in itself. It's like, wow, you're, they you really, really think it's okay to blame a woman where her, her husband murdered her. Yeah. Pregnant and cold blooded and her daughters and put them in oil tanks. But I, I was, you know, I was like, I am preserving. There's nothing this woman did wrong. First of all, nothing. Literally you didn't nothing. like her social media posts that you, you, you knew her through social media. No, you didn't know her. Right. You weren't her friend. You don't right. know her. You right. can't judge someone based on their social and media. Posts. By all accounts, she was a lovely, lovely yes. woman. This is the other thing I say in my book. This woman had so many friends. The reason the case unfolded the way it did was because her friends were so worried about her within hours. Right. They knew she was missing within hours within because hours. they were so connected. And she because, had so many right. people that cared about her and so many people that loved her. Chris had no real friends, by the way, none. Yeah. Yep. So what, also what a does red that flag. tell you? Also, what does flag. that tell you? Mm-hmm. Well, and it also points, I mean, it's like, again, just because your husband has no friends doesn't necessarily, doesn't mean he's a psychopath because the way right. that we condition men in our society is such that so many men don't have friends, right? But this is a problem. Yeah. And I talk <laughs> this about this problem. too in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a book called no more Mr. Nice guy that I cite in my book, which is like, I do think part of the issue is that we are raising boys to feel like it's not okay to have emotions. And then they come out in these really unhealthy ways. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. And, you know, I have a quote from Mark Lamont Hill, who's a scholar, who's like the only emotions that we are told are okay are like sexual desire and anger. Right. Those are the that's only right. socially acceptable emotions for boys and men. And I know the tide is turning a bit on this um, and that it's getting better. And I, you know, as a mother of a son and you as well as Kate, you know, I know that we're, we're trying really hard to fight that in our own oh, boys, yeah. but like Absolutely. the messages they're still getting outside of the home still very much are like, you know, these kind of toxic masculinity themes mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that we really have to work hard to break down because, and I do think that plays a part in all of this is, you know, the inability for men to be able, and even psychopathic men or narcissistic men to be able to talk about things. Maybe somebody could have said, Hey, there's a different solution to, you You know, if you've been in therapy, I, you, who knows, you know, but um, I do think that's a real part of the issue as well. Yeah. I mean, he had no one to talk to, to say, God, I'm feeling constrained. I'm feeling yeah. like I want something else. <laughs> like, yeah. He's all this rage bubbling inside and he's blaming mm-hmm. his wife and daughters for his, yeah. you know, his life. He's a big boy. He's an adult man, but like he's letting it simmer and simmer inside until he explodes, which again is sort of the 
snapping part, you could say, which Mm -hmm. could be premeditated, but it's like the simmering, simmering, simmering is going on until, you know, it's like I said, it's a perfect storm of factors, really. It really is. So I want to go back before, before we, uh, before we end here, um, let's go back to victim blaming and women always being sort of held responsible for their own victimization and Amber Heard, the vitriol, the rage against Amber Heard is astonishing to me. Yes, and, and I already hear a bunch of, I can hear it now, a bunch of listeners even, right? Mm-hmm. Listeners to this podcast, people mm-hmm. who are feminists, people who believe women mm-hmm. still don't believe Amber Heard. So what the fuck is going on, Lena? <laughs> I mean, again, it's, you know, we are voyeurs into something we really know nothing about. We, yeah, we have some video, you know, we have, we're some learning a lot. We have video, <laughs> we're learning a lot for sure. Um, but again, I don't, I, you know, I look at it as it's not really, I don't really even fully know what's going on because I'm an observer, mm-hmm. but I do know that they're, like I said, to, um, put the full blame on Amber Heard to me is just, that's not right. It's not okay. You know, um, and the labels and the trolling, you know, we know now people are paying, um, bots to have this, this, um, which is in the news recently, um, Bots are being paid by Johnny Depp's team, I think, to circulate. To slander um, her. Yeah. Even though he's the one suing for slander. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I think it was some some something from his team and these bots. Um, or, you know, there's a hashtag like Amber Heard is a psychopath and things like that. But also, I just don't understand why people care so much about other people's lives to the point where they want to tear somebody down like that. Um, but yeah, it's really, it's really bad. Um, from a domestic violence standpoint and survivor standpoint. Um, yeah, it's, it's even just people watching it. It's just bad for the whole movement. Um, what's happening. It really is. And let's be really clear about why, because, you know, women who are abused, who have not behaved well, because in the face of their abuse, because Mm -hmm. as you said, they are, you know, neurologically kind of skewed at this point. Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. they have like, they are in a trauma response. They are not Mm -hmm. in their right mind. They are not in their Mm -hmm. right thinking and all of their rational begging, pleading conversations, right. They, they go nowhere. So they, they take to, you know, we're, we're caged animals essentially. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we exhibit really bad behavior, right? Right. Um, As, yeah. The whole dysregulation, you're dysregulated. You're trying to, you know, figure everything out. And yeah, you have these trauma responses that people are judging. Right. And then, and then when you see, when as a victim, you're watching this whole thing unfold and you realize that you are quote, not the perfect victim because Amber Heard is not the perfect victim, which doesn't right. exist. Right. The number of women or, or the number of uh, victims, I should say, who are not going to come forward now because, right, right. because this is what happens. Yeah. This is the punishment. Right? And so many women already don't come forward. Exactly. That's like the amount of underreported abuse on any level. It's just, I don't even think we even know how vastly underreported is because right especially if it's someone in who's in power right and that's like some yeah saying someone was saying to me the other day remind them a bit of monica Lewinsky and nita hill 
type uh-huh. stuff before social media. You know? Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I think it's really important to, you know, one of the things that defines uh, domestic violence and intimate partner violence is the imbalance of power. Right. Right. And, and there, while there may be um, abuse kind of what looks like on the outside, what they call mutual abuse, which I, is not a thing. It may look like that from the outside to people who don't understand it. Right. But when, Mm -hmm. but people who are, who are skilled in this and understand intimate partner violence, understand that there is always a power dynamic and Uh the, and then power imbalance. And the primary aggressor is the person with the most power. And Johnny Depp had far more power whether yeah. that was, you know, uh, financial, um, you know, I mean, he was controlling what roles she took mm-hmm. and what movies she did. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. it's And so I, you know, and, and I'm going to say it because this is what everybody says. Yes. Men can be victims. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Men can be victims in my opinion from mm-hmm. watching and 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 reading and also being a certified domestic violence advocate. Yeah. Johnny Depp is not a victim. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. I mean, I'm, I'm but I think it needs to be spoken out, but even people are yeah. scared to speak up now because again, that's you right. have conservative hosts paying for $50,000 for ads to smear Amber too. They like what is that, you know? Like, why this poor woman? Like, why are we so invested? Like, look, that's what I'm saying. It's like to it's, be invested, to want to like be that cruel to somebody. What does that say about the person who's being cruel? Like, what is the need for that? What is the point of that? What is that accomplishing? And why is that so systemic right now? Yeah. And why do we care? Right. So much about, you know what I mean? I, I, I wish the trial wasn't televised. Yeah. But why are we so invested in Johnny Depp? Right. Like I grew up, I am, you know, I am 51 years old. 21 Jump Street was like, that was my teenage. (laughs) That was it, you know? Right. He and, you know, for those of you who are younger, there was a TV show before there was a movie. (laughs) Johnny Depp was like, Johnny Depp walked on the scene like, you know, like Brad Pitt. And it was like, whoa. And I, you know, spent many years obsessed with him. I'm willing, I can let that go. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> I can let that go because so I just yeah, it's fascinating to me anyway. Um, OK, so takeaways about this Chris Watts, about what we should like, what have we learned? Yeah, again, I think the whole devalue thing, like once a partner starts devaluing you, mm-hmm. I think it's a huge red flag to really pay attention to and, you know, really ask yourself is this something that I want to continue and be with somebody who treats me like this or who does, you know, who, who could do this so quickly to me too. You know, I think that's, yeah, that's a huge takeaway for me. Um, just thinking about, you know, our own worth. And now again, I, I have to say Shanann was pregnant had two little girls and wanted to keep the family together. And of course I fully understand that and don't think she did anything wrong. But again, I think as women, we, we have a very low bar sometimes for what we do. We will we do. accept. We do. And sometimes, yeah. And I, you know, and who, and who's to say that Shanann would not have gotten there, but she didn't have time. No, she would have. She didn't have time. 
I'm sure she would have. I think she was already thinking about it actually yeah. from some of her text messages. She was starting to think about what life um, with a divorce would look like and how yeah. she would do that as a single mother. Right. And she said, if he's cheating on me, it's over. I mean, she had, you know, she just didn't know. Right. And she, and didn't, she didn't have, have time. time. And I think that's the huge tragedy of all of this is that, you know, she just thought, again, it was so fast. She just thought they were in a rough patch and, you know, maybe they could work it out and she didn't have time to figure it out. Um, and again, this is a very rare story, this type of story, yeah, which is why it has so much media attention. So again, you know, but again, there is a high rate of partner uh, men murdering their partners too. So, you know, we also can't be like, well, it's never going to happen to me. We also have to think it could happen to me. I That's think. right. That's right. It's important to not look at this and be like, oh, it's this one and done, like, you know, yeah. weird thing, because I think there is so much in it that is systemic. Yeah, that that created this perfect storm, right? Um, but each of the components of the storm still exist very broadly um, in yes. our society. And very we have much to watch so. out for them. Yeah. So I think yeah, it could happen to you. Not saying it will, but it's you know we have to have our guard up and we have to protect ourselves and our and our children first and foremost. And I think that's the other thing in this story too, right? Is like protecting ourselves comes first. Mm-hmm. That's right. Thank you so much, Lena. This is such a hard one, but I, I yeah. so appreciate all of your, your work and study on it and your book, which is available um, on Amazon and on your website as well. That's, mm-hmm. is that Lena yeah. yeah. Anywhere books mm-hmm. are sold. Yeah, I can get it. Um, but yes. And thank you, Kate, for having this platform to talk about this. Um, I talk about victim blaming and the Facebook nurses too. So I'm very passionate about um, these topics and glad we were able to have this discussion, because I think it's really important that we have these places where people can just hear this kind of discussion. Yeah. And we don't mean to panic people, but also we, we need to educate people. Yes. A hundred percent education. Thank you, my love. So good to talk to you as always. You too. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Divorce Survival Guide podcast. If you like what you hear, head on over to Apple podcasts or wherever you listen in and leave me a review. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at The Divorce Survival Guide. I'll see you next time. And until then, remember, you, my love, deserve to be happy.